Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathaniel. And I'm Doris Mar. And today we're sitting down with Charmaine Wilkerson. Charmaine is a writer from New York who has lived in Jamaica and is based in Italy. She is a former news and communication professional who lived in California for several years, working as a television news reporter and anchor in Los Angeles and Bakersfield. She is a Barnard College and Stanford University graduate and the author of the debut novel Black Cake, which has appeared in various magazines and anthologies. Charmaine, thank you for joining us. It's a privilege to speak with you today. Thank you. It's great to be here with both of you. So I'd like to start by getting a bit of insight into your background, your upbringing. Um... To start, a few small questions kind of combined into one. Um, so just take them take them as you'd like. Um, so what were you like growing up? What were your interests? Who were your friends? Well, I certainly was a reader growing up. I loved books. Uh, I spent part of my childhood living in Jamaica. I left New York and moved to Jamaica. And that was an environment at the time when, um, you know, in which Really, if you weren't playing outside, you were reading. There was very little television. Um, you were either in the water or in the garden or with books. And even then, I had a sense that I loved stories, meaning fictional stories, made-up stories. And I always thought, oh, one day I'm going to write my own stories. So I was one of those little girls. Um, and again, I think part of that was fostered by the fact that I moved away from my home city of New York and ended up in a fairly quiet setting. Could you actually tell us a bit about some of the books that you read when you were younger and maybe um, that point when you were like, oh, I want to write my own story, like what book might have influenced that perhaps? Certainly as a child, I read a number of the books that were produced for children. So I can even remember reading the Nancy Drew stories. And um, as I got older, something like Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. I also read books that were produced for children in the Caribbean. So one of my end-all be-all favorites, and I still have that book, is a book of folk tales based on Anansi, the spider god. So Anansi in this book of folk tales was this mischievous little guy, this little spider man, who was always trying to trick other people into getting, giving him a basket of food or some kind of uh, goodies. And he was always getting himself into trouble. And I think I realize now that that was my first encounter with a flawed protagonist. You know, he was a little naughty. He was sort of up to his tricks. He was always getting himself into trouble. But you just couldn't help but love the guy. There was something about him and his friends. Um, but one of the things that happened to me, and I think this was where my mind, um, I first became aware of the power of writing and a book, was I would look at the shelf um, where my parents kept their books. And I'd look at all of these titles and think, hmm. And so I'd swipe books from them. And really, some of them were beyond my reading level. But I remember reading a book by Edgar Allan Poe, of all things, never again. <laughs> you know, it really frightened me. But the fascinating thing was that for the first time, I remember reading a story in which there was a description of this one moment. And it took many, many words to describe that single moment. And it was my first conscious awareness that storytelling somehow had its own aesthetic, that it 
it had something that was almost artificial, that you could manipulate words and ideas and slow down the action and in the process scare a seven-year-old child, <laughs> you know. Um, I'm not sure that I really answered your question that specifically, but that's what I did. I had the childhood books, I had some of the folk tales, and I was starting to take books from my parents' shelves. And so in your free time as well, would you ever try telling stories to your friends, things that um, perhaps you started like just imagining new new ideas, new worlds, anything like that, uh, that you would perhaps like write down? Would you share those with people as well? No, mostly I, I would write little poems, and I think they were fairly pedestrian poems. I don't think we're talking about the genesis of a great talent here, you know, but I just liked writing things down, and I liked the sound of words and the rhythm of words. Um, what I did enjoy, and this, this again is more on the receiving end, is um, there were a couple of adults in my life who were great storytellers, and they used to love to. There was a woman who would tell us ghost stories, for example, and I remember that a number of us, you know, kids, my my friends um, from our childhood, childhood, we'd sit down on the floor and just look and listen, and an adult would just weave this story. And so really um, all that I can say about that period is that I had this sense of being connected to other people through stories, the idea of the imaginary worlds. But no, I wasn't world building at that time. I wasn't creating fantasy worlds or inventing much. The kinds of stories or poems I would write would just tend to mimic the world around me at the time. And you touched upon um, the woman who would t tell ghost stories. Um, I'm curious, are there stories that have been passed down in your family that you hope to pass down as well? I would say that my parents were not great storytellers. Um, and the woman I was talking about would tell us ghost stories. Um, I would say that the kinds of stories that have had an influence on me were not presented as stories, but were just tales of my parents' youth, things they'd gone through, uh, adventures. I can tell you an a story that I remember my father telling, and um, he was quite serious as he told it, but my sister and I were in stitches laughing. And it's a story of a hurricane. So he described... Um, uh, needing to, and, and this, this is a detail that I sort of steal and change in my novel. This hurricane is arriving. They know it's coming. The, the storm's already kicking up. And they barely have enough time to board up the house and put away chickens. They're helping, they're helping this woman put away her chickens so that they won't be hurt by the storm. Well, they, they weren't able to. They weren't able to get the chickens out of the wire cage. And the poor animals had to go through the storm. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh because I think it was tri quite traumatic. But I remember um, us asking, but, but were they killed? And he said, no, no, they weren't killed but they were bald. <laughs> and I'm sorry that I laugh because it was an unfortunate and traumatic experience for these poor animals, but it was the idea of all of the feathers and, and the seriousness with which he answered the question, not realizing that it sounded funny to us as children. And then he said, and I don't think they were ever the same again. And, and 
that's almost a storytelling pattern that one might use again in something that's more of a fairy tale or something that's humor. It was just a life story. And actually, it was a very unpleasant event. Um, so my parents would tell stories like that that I remember, but they did not intend them as tales. And I would not pass these down to other people necessarily. Um, sort of on that note, it seems like you know, all these oral, hearing all these oral stories throughout your childhood, has there been like anything maybe in the way they told it that you would like or have used in your own like stories, whether when you're telling them or writing them, like any, have you used any like methods, if that makes sense? I think rather than methods, Doris, I think it would be more along the lines of rhythm, the idea uh, living in Jamaica exposed me to a dialect. And so certainly in my first novel, Black Cake, I use words from that dialect. Um, just a few words here and there, but the idea of stories told and um, punctuated uh, with words from other languages, but it's not really another language. It's part of all, it's all part of the same language. It's English and this other dialect in this particular country. Um, so the rhythm of storytelling, and for me, it's more also the context of storytelling. So in my novel, Black Cake, there is a scene where there's a man who cooks and sells fish and cassava cakes on the beach. And this guy's been around forever with his wife. They always sell to people who go to the beach. And the same children who used to play at the beach when he was a young man are now grown men. And so they stand around on the beach, you know, with bottles of beer or soda in their hands, and they talk. They talk about politics. They talk about different things. For me, it's the context in which stories take place children sitting in a circle around an elderly woman listening to ghost stories, um, boys who are now men with their own children standing around this man who has always sold fish and cassava cakes to their families and just sharing, swapping ideas, swapping stories. And there's one other thing that I can remember, and, and I I keep talking about Jamaica, but really just because I spent um, very young years in that setting. Um, and that is we'd often have power outages and um, they'd last for hours at night. And sometimes when there was a power outage, um, the adults from the neighborhood would just line chairs up in a row. And they'd take these uh, candles that were in glass containers and they'd set the glass containers down along the driveway and they just sit in a row and talk. And so I have this memory of that context, you know, it's dark, everything is dark, people are lined up in chairs, the candles are on the ground and you just talk. That makes me think of, uh, I, I think just stories I've read in the past of um, just people sitting out on their porch and just like a kid walking home from school, passing by all the neighbors. Um, and I think that's something that, at least in my experience growing up, I didn't have. And I think a lot of people uh, around my age haven't had, um, especially with just the rise of social media, um, mass communication, all of that. Um, do you think there's a way to kind of reach back into those roots somehow? 
and engage in community discussions like that, neighborhood talks, um, things like that. And uh, do you think that's possible, I think would be one question. And if so, how do you think we could achieve that in a place, um, I think like on a college campus, it's more achievable, but in a suburban neighborhood, perhaps, how could that be achieved? I think that that's an interesting point you raise because also so much of our time and attention is spent on things like social media and also various responsibilities. It depends on where you live, I think. But um, there's something that is quintessentially American, even though it takes place in other cultures. And I think this is an example of what you can do in a suburban community. Barbecue. (laughs) You gather in the backyard and you share a meal. Well, two people could still be looking at their cell phones and catching up on email while other people are talking, but you can be around each other. Um, This idea of social media and face-to-face verbal communication, I see those coexisting in Italy. I live in Italy right now, in central Italy, and it's a stereotype, but it's also true that Italians are quite verbal and communicative, and they sort of gather, especially in central Italy. So in Rome, you'll see people standing on the street corner, you'll see people sitting outside cafes, and they do talk to one another. And here's the interesting thing. I don't know what the current statistic is, but I know that several years ago, Italy had the number two per capita cell phone saturation in the world, meaning more Italians had cell phones per capita than anyone else or almost anyone else. And yet, in certain parts of Italy where people are accustomed to speaking on the street corner, they still do. So what is the answer? I think each person just sort of needs to find their own way. It is interesting to hear that um, I've heard reports from people who teach, especially in secondary schools, that during the pandemic, for example, that uh, sort of physical isolation compared with um, the use of social media and cell phones um, sort of took students away from verbal discourse and they sort of lost some of those skills or lost some of that tendency. Um, I continue to think that all you need is a meeting point. You know, yes, you have to be polite enough to put your cell phone down once in a while while in someone else's presence. But I think that maybe it's less complicated than we think it is. You know, just sit down together, share a meal together, walk together. Yeah, those are all great points. And um, it brings me to my next question perfectly. Um, You mentioned barbecue um, is a very like classic American thing of using it as a means of, uh, of gathering. Um, but I'm curious, um, could you tell us a bit about using food as a means of expression as well? In my uh, novel, Black Cake, I should say, first of all, that the title comes from the name of a traditional Caribbean fruitcake. But in the novel, food is used as a kind of language through which Traditions and stories are transferred from one generation to the next or from one region of the world to the next. And uh, I think this is universal. We know that food holds a great deal of importance in cultures everywhere in terms of rituals and celebration. 
but really food as a language in which you convey affection because you serve it, in which you convey togetherness because you make it together, in which you celebrate, in which you convey strife because you work very hard to produce it. Um, and that can be used in storytelling. It's something that I do. So even though there's talk about cake, then there's talk about indigenous foods and local traditions, it's not even so much about the ingredients. It's about what is the process of producing or sharing the food doing to the relationship between the people? And how is that a language to transfer information? The black cake itself is a kind of symbol. It emerges as a symbol of stories that are told and stories that are not told. Um, and while the characters themselves only talk a little bit about it, it's there in the story because you have a cake, celebration, Christmas, weddings. But then you have a cake that is considered a classic um, Caribbean food, but it's actually an adaptation of a food from the British Isles. And the unspoken story there, the language that's being conveyed is that it's a memory of colonialism. It speaks to a social and economic and political changes that took place. It speaks to a connection between one culture and the other for better or worse over time. So that's an example of how food can be used as a language to tell a story. That sounds very beautiful. I love that lens of looking at food with having so much depth and meaning because I, I agree, you know, especially with food that comes from a specific culture or in such, it holds so much tradition and history. Um, I kind of want to touch upon what you mentioned a bit on the untold story because it seems to be quite a theme as well throughout your book um, and in general. So I was wondering, how do you determine kind of what shouldn't be told in writing or in stories um, and the influence of that, I guess? How do I determine or how do people determine what shouldn't be told? Maybe we mean? could touch upon both or whichever one you think. Well, I think the, the way I tend to see it is, and, you know, before Nathaniel was asking about, you know, growing up and, and what I do remember about stories is that when I was a kid, I might hear the same story over and over again. And it might not be interesting enough to share it with you, but I'd remember that story about so-and-so and what happened to so-and-so. Then, when I became an adult, I'd hear that story and information was added. Obviously, I'd become mature enough to hear more details. And that, that is the kind of thing that I think about when I think of stories that are told or not, sto not told. Stories have the power to shape our identities, our sense of self, our sense of family and home. And even the stories that are not told carry weight. They carry weight by their absence, and they certainly carry weight when they are revealed. This is something that happens in the novel. Uh, new information comes forward, and it really upends people's lives. But I think that when we talk about what is withheld and what is not, it depends on the context. Is a story withheld because someone is ashamed? Is a story with um, not told because someone simply didn't know? 
is a story never heard simply because no one thought to tell it. And then it emerges later. But that dynamic of the fact that stories help us to shape our sense of who we are and our relationships, that dynamic of that untold part is a fascinating thing. And it's certainly something that intrigues me in storytelling. Um, my novel on the surface is about something else, but it's really about that, the power of stories to shape our identities, our sense of family and home, and how that influences a shift. Because I'm interested in shifting ideas of family and home and self. And kind of looking at a bigger picture now of um, your novel writing process, um, I'm curious if you have any advice for students as far as um, keeping track of your own progress and staying consistent in um, the time that you're putting into your work. By work, are you talking about creative writing as in storytelling, or do you mean work in general for courses? More so... Um, I think just like with, if you have, for example, for you, a novel, um, but maybe for students, it would be like a project or just a bigger outside thing that they're trying to work on, just staying on top of uh, those little tasks that add up. Um, like, did you try writing like five pages a day, something like that? How, how was your approach to writing it? So understand that my response is going to be different from a lot of people's. I, I think that it really does help to just show up meaning this idea of waiting for inspiration to strike is a risky endeavor. And I think that's true also when you've got work to do for a course. You know, take a moment when it feels good for you and commit to that moment and write. It doesn't have to be five pages. It might be one sentence. It's not so much the writing, at least in, um, in my case, as the thinking time, allowing yourself to think about a specific task or a specific dimension of your work, giving yourself time to just be quiet in the place. And it may only be 10 minutes, it may be 20 minutes. Um, what I think is great for keeping track of work um, uh, is tied to, to computer technology. You know, we have computers now. So what I do is, if I write something, I put it in a file. Yes, I end up with many files, but I just put it in a file and I don't worry about it. But then I can see on my computer screen these different files and I can combine them later. I also go back to a very old-fashioned method. I use a pencil. Once I've written material and I think that I need to take a step back and organize it or decide whether I need to add research to something that I've just written from the imagination, I literally take a pencil and I'm mind mapping. I draw diagrams. You know, I might draw a little box and put Nathaniel's name in there and say, so if Nathaniel was doing this on that particular day, do I need to do research into the context on what was happening? I think we can use anything that works for us. Um, but without a doubt, taking time that you know works for you when you're having your coffee, or maybe you're out taking a walk and you record a few words in your mobile phone, whatever it is, try to do it consistently. But I don't believe that someone should worry about 
It's got to be five pages. It's got to be 10,000 words. I think that we don't need to add stress to our lives. The theme of today's episode is really context matters. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. Thank you, uh, Charmaine, for joining us. Um, and Doris, would you like to close us out? Yeah. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Stay hungry.